This is episode 264 of the 200 Churches Podcast. Like my neighbor across the hallway who's not a Christian, who God just got me to stop praying for her on my phone and texting her and just walk across the hall and say, Christine, can I pray with you? She says, yes. I said, can I pray with you in person? She says, no. I said, okay, that's okay. Because can I just tell you what I think God said to me while I was praying for you? She says, yes. And she starts to cry. And I said, this is what he told me about what he sees in you and how he loves you. And she just stood in her doorway and wept and wept and wept and has been so softened to the things of God in the last couple weeks. And I was like, she did not need to hear (laughs) the way that I wanted to tell her about the love of God. She just needed to hear that God loved her the way that God wanted to tell her. Welcome to the 200 Churches Podcast, where every Wednesday we produce a legit episode of ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. Now, here are two guys who have been encouraging thousands of pastors all around the world for five years. Good friends, pastors, and podcast partners, Jeff and Johnny. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Jeff Cady. I'm here in the digital sound studio with my good friend and podcast partner, Johnny Craig. Johnny, how are you this fine evening? I am. I told somebody today who asked me that question, I said, I'm six shades of wonderful. Well, you know what? What I think (laughs) is anybody who might think about testing out trainedup.com, church would be six or seven shades of wonderful what do you think that's a seamless plug i think you're right about that jeff trained up dot church they have all the training videos that you're going to need to launch a new ministry or to revitalize a ministry that maybe has been limping along for a little while i know that uh that chester arthur has been their front door greeter for 30 years but he's not doing anybody any favors okay with the same old same old so get yourself a new greeter team, get yourself a kids ministry revamp and send them to trainedup.church and they will get all the training videos that you need to have a team that knows what they're doing. Well, trainedup.church is so nice because you can use their training videos or you can make your own with your with your iPhone camera. Mm. You can make your own. It's so easy. Like last week, I told you, you can make your own. This is how you make coffee training video yes. you know you don't have to you don't have to create some hollywood production some fancy thing <laughs> you need to train your people in the specifics of your church local church ministry and you could upload so many videos you can assign them to people and you could track who's watching what and for how long so that's pretty cool it's a little big brother but it'll work i think sometimes the church needs a little a little bit of big brother so head over to trainedup.church Use the code 200 churches, all caps, and you're going to get 10% off for life. Not your first video for, for like the rest life. of my life. Absolutely. And you're a small church pastor. You just need the single user program there and uh, you will not regret it. I'm sure. So Jeff, who's on the podcast today? Today. Oh my goodness. Today. It's unbelievable. We have Dr. Cherith Nordling again, Cherith Fee Nordling from Northern Seminary. She's come on to talk to us, man, about her story, about the Holy Spirit, about different denominations, oh my word. about how how her dad prepared for seminary classes like a boss. Uh, I mean, just it's crazy. It's crazy. It's a, it's an awesome episode. I mean, you and I were 
it, it's almost like we were hang, we were flying outside of a plane, but our hands were hanging on to the window sills <laughs> as our feet were flopping against the side of the fuselage. Oh, I mean, right. that's what this episode was like. If uh, if people want to to understand before they listen to this, if they want to understand what they're in for, they can go back to that famous Christological tornado that Cherith Nordling provided us on episode 231 and you can get a little flavor for what's to come on this episode so I I am so glad that Cherith was willing to come back to share her story and her experience and her heart as an educator of pastors for what small church ministry is looking like so Jeff she has a lot to say Let's get out of the way. This is our conversation. Cherith Nordling, you came back. We didn't freak you out last time. We didn't scare you away. You were willing to come back on and hang out with us again. Thank you very much for that. How are you? I am well. And actually, I'm quite surprised that you were willing to have me back. <laughs> that your hair wasn't blown back and that your phone lines didn't fall off. And I felt like it was a fire hydrant and a windstorm all at one time. And so thanks for just letting me unleash. Well, I had a blast. You know, if you go to the mall, you will see that there are hurricane machines and people pay money to stand <laughs> inside of the hurricane machine. And I think that's what happened. It was it was thrilling. It was a great joy. So, yeah. Oh, we'll have to talk about who gets paid. <laughs> that's the only thing. Yeah, that's the biggest thing around here we got to worry about. So, Cherith, for those who didn't have, maybe they've joined us since then or or maybe they've just forgotten. Can you reintroduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. And yeah, just a little about yourself. Sure. My name is Cherith V. Nordling. And currently, I am Associate Professor of Theology at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois, outside Chicago. And I am happily married to Robert, who is an orchestral conductor. I have two sons who live on each coast of the United States and are happily married, and I'm kind of a theological and ecclesial mutt who has come up through lots and lots of different church traditions and loved being a marketplace Christian for 15 to 20 years before I ever did seminary or went on in my studies. So my heart is in the church, loves being the church, and loves encouraging people who are trying to be and lead the church. Very cool, Cherith. Now, I, I have your appointment in my calendar, and so uh, our admin here at the church asked me, who is Cherith Nordling? And I said, oh, she's a uh, she's a seminary professor. We're going to talk to her on our podcast. Her dad was Gordon Fee, you know. And so she checked your bio, and it said you were involved in the Presbyterian Church and the Christian Reformed Church, is that right? Mm-hmm. And, so and I came Baptist up, seminary. <laughs> and I go to an Episcopal church and was an <laughs> Anglican for a long time. So I know it's it's kind of crazy, but it has really been an amazing gift to have come up in Pentecostal circles. Um, my grandfathers were both uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of God pastors. They both church planted. Uh, my grandpa on my mom's side, he and my grandmother planted something like 30 churches in their lifetime, spent oh, wow. like 25 years in Alaska. And, and they would really plant them, like, let's get the hammer and the nails and build the building and start a community. And then once wow. it got going, they would 
move on and start another one. Both of these men were actually on the committees back in like the 30s that oversaw each other's ordination into the Assemblies of God. And my grandpa Loftal, my mom's dad, who was the Alaskan church planter, never went past the eighth grade in his education. And my grandpa Fee, my dad's dad, ended up being a college professor. So my dad and mom, when they were first married right out of college, they both really wanted to be missionaries and were kind of waiting for that missionary call. And They just did what their parents did, which was to start a church, plant a church, build the building. And it was in the context of that that my dad actually got the privilege of teaching like a college class nearby, an English nighttime college class or something, in addition to being a pastor, and really found that his world and his life was in the classroom. And just that ability to be focused in his teaching and framing. At that stage, he remembers someone challenging him when he sort of talked about the possibility of going on and doing higher education, saying that from his tradition, it would be better to be a fool on fire than to be a scholar on ice. And that (laughs) when he was given those two options and he went to the Holy Spirit with them, that the Spirit sort of said, well, Gordon, maybe there is a third way and that you could try to be a scholar on fire. So not knowing that background story, I just always thought that that's what everybody did who taught at seminary. And I remember coming home when I was a high schooler. We had moved by this time to the Boston area. My dad was teaching at Gordon-Conwell. And after coming up through Pentecostal churches until I was in high school at that point, we then were going to a congregational church. My dad was teaching at Gordon-Conwell, and I remember stopping to pick him up on my way home from work. Um, I think I was a junior or senior in high school, and I could see his light on in his office in this dark building, and I heard this little noise, and I went in, and I was like, Dad, (laughs) and I couldn't see anybody, and he's on the floor, and I was like, are you okay? He's like, oh, yeah, and he just gets up, and he wipes his face off, and he says, "Just, just preparing the lecture, he says, God is just so astonishing, honey, and I looked down at his desk, and it's like second year Greek exegesis stuff all over the desk. I thought, these people do not know how lucky they are to have this man who just loves Mm. God and keeps meeting God in the word all the time. And then I've been spending the rest of my life finding out that people really did know that these students really did know because they had met a man who was full of the spirit and loved the Lord and loved teaching and preaching in the classroom all at the same time out of that uh, way of being. So when I uh, graduated college, we ended up, my husband and I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was the early 80s, and we ended up at a Presbyterian church. And it was a church that my parents would come and visit and laugh and say, this is our favorite Pentecost or Presbycostal church, they would call it. (laughs) (laughs) And that was when we learned the word renewal. And I'd never heard that word because I had sort of grown up in churches where you expected God to show up and to be present and to equip his people with the gifts that would build up the church. And so we had church, and then we always sort of had time to kind of hang out with God afterward and see what he would like to do in addition to whatever we were planning to do. So to come to a Presbyterian church, which was deeply Trinitarian in its um, worship life, in its sort of liturgical creedal life, because I'd never had creeds, and then to have the experience of the Spirit in this deeply 
sort of rich historical way, because in my Pentecostal tradition, the church didn't start till the turn of the 20th century. It was just a, a wonderful meeting of worlds for us. And my husband was the worship pastor there, as well as a conductor in the Bay Area. So it meant the integration of the arts and worship and music and theology. And it, and also, it also means that, that now is where you're going to fit in the answer to my question of, what did you do before you went to seminary? You said you were a corporate or, or a workplace Christian, uh, yeah. Christian. So while we were doing all of this life at, in First Pres, San Mateo, California, I was a paralegal at a law firm up in the San Francisco financial district, and then for about five years down in Palo Alto near Stanford. So yeah, my life in the church as an adult was totally shaped by being part of a very vibrant, spirit-filled Presbyterian church where the laity really understood themselves to be the church. The pastors really understood themselves as pastors who were called to equip the laity. They did not see themselves as being in charge of everything. They saw themselves as looking for ways to encourage and call out and find room for the gifting of God's people. So even from my early 20s, and this was a church that probably didn't have a lot of people in their 20s when we first arrived there. They were mostly an older congregation. But from our first landing there, uh, we were invited to be part of the teaching life of the church, the worship life of the church, eventually the preaching life of the church, uh, healing teams, prayer ministry. And we watched God do absolutely remarkable things. It was also the time of uh, John Wimber teaching a class on signs and wonders down in, in uh, Southern Cal. So we went down there twice over the course of a couple of years to take those classes uh, as a group from our church to sort of see what God was doing there that was very similar and what was unique that they could help us learn in terms of the things that we were also seeing at our church. From your Presbyterian church. From my Presbycostal church. So we were like, okay, we get that. We've seen God do really similar things to that. But it was actually out of that at least 12 years of life in that context that I remember uh, spending a lot of time praying with a group of women in particular who we just, we were part of a, a ministry teams together. We were part of a discernment of prayer group. These were older women who just taught me how to come and, and do intercessory prayer for hours and hours, just listening to the Lord. And I thought, because they said, this will be so fun. You should come with us. And I thought, oh, great. They're going to take me to somewhere great to a restaurant or something. And we've got to their house. They're like, we're going to pray. <laughs> I was like, what? But it did become like the richest, wildest time as I was growing up through my 20s and 30s to hang with these brilliant women who were like doctors and and lawyers and just everything just but they were humble women before God but they also heard the voice of God and the pastors would check in to say what did you hear because they learned how to listen and I learned with them how to listen and discern but all that said is that we were also praying with a woman who was coming down from the North counties. So north of San Francisco is a lot of occultic activity. Hmm. And she had come down, she'd heard something on the radio about a Christian counseling center that sounded like it was talking about things that 
were very familiar to her experience. And she went and they said, you need a church if you're going to be doing this work with us. Because it was really deeply like dissociative work. It was multiple personality stuff, as we called it then. It had a lot of demonic attachment to it. So she (laughs) found us in the yellow pages, came in on a Sunday night and said, could you be my church? And we just started praying with her and learned a ton. And when I was, my son was four, so I would have been about 32, 33. I wasn't ready for his birthday party. And I got out of bed and went and wrote the list of things I hadn't remembered to do for the next day. And I woke up and looked at that list the next morning. It said things like buy balloons, buy paper plates. And then it said, get your degree in marriage and family counseling. And then it was like, call Mm. Ryan's mother and buy a pinata. And I was like, that is my handwriting. And I think the Lord spoke to me, but I, I just sat with that for a week and then just prayed it over with a bunch of folks over some time. And it became the back door through which God brought me to school. And in starting to go back to school, just pondering and caring deeply, what did it mean for people to be whole? What did it mean for healing to be about whole persons when whole persons were not necessarily the same thing as individual whole selves in a time of enormous self-help and individualized life. And to keep thinking, this doesn't feel right in terms of Trinitarian life and community life together. And so in the process of that, uh, going to school, I ended up taking a summer school class at Regent College with my husband who had a study leave. And we were sitting in on a class on theology and worship and the arts. And the teacher of that class who was coming over from England just asked me one day, he said, Cherith, are you really going to go on in psychology? And I said, I don't know. I've really been praying. I feel like the Lord has been inviting me to pray into the next thing. And he said, well, I think your questions are really theological questions. I don't Hmm. think they're psychological questions. And he said, so I just challenge you. He said, I challenge you to ask the Lord whether you are to do theology and let these deep questions of what does it mean to be human and whole and and communal in ways that are shaped by theology instead of psychology um, to be a larger umbrella. And it felt like the heavens parted, really. And I just started laughing, like, really, you could do that for a job? Like, I would love to do that. (laughs) And I ended up going back to school, just carrying on and stayed a Presbyterian when we were moved up to Washington State so that I could go to Regent College. And my husband was on staff at another charismatic Presbyterian church there. And then we moved to England and we were part of an amazing spirit-filled, spirit-led Anglican church there for five years. Wow! And then to come back to the States, we ended up at Calvin College and took a position there together. And to be a person who teaches at Calvin, you are also a person who goes to a Christian Reformed church. Yes. So, <laughs> so suddenly there we were in this amazing new conversation with a bunch of Christian Reformed Dutch folk to figure out issues of race and reconciliation and the power of the spirit to do that kind of work in a very racialized city like Grand Rapids, which really prepared us over the course of a decade for us to come to Chicago and be in that conversation in a completely different way with a bunch of American Baptists. So here's the long, (laughs) crazy, like, mutt story. of. (laughs) You've done it all. I've I've sort of 
circumvented the whole thing except for the Catholics, but I do love hanging out with them. <laughs> You're like a uh, uh, Johnny Cash. You know, you've been everywhere. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. No, that's awesome. That's very cool. I would like to know, Cherith, how is your dad doing? My dad is doing. He is declining, but his decline is really slow. So he still is very much my dad, even though his memory is, you know, very, very much failing. But what's most stunning to me is that he remembers, it's just his relationship with God is as lively as it's ever been. He might not remember the name of many, many people, or he might not remember what we did an hour ago, but he will carry that bulletin from Sunday morning worship. And my dad, talk about going to different churches, my father goes to Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, which just cracks me up in the Reformed world. But he loves that worship service, and he loves that liturgy, and he uses it every day. And he just spends this amazing time with the Lord. And so I get the privilege of going around and speaking in various places and having people regularly say to me that they have been shaped very profoundly in their life by the Lord. Um through stuff that my dad has written or done. And so for me to get to call him every week and tell him that and listen to him cry and pray together over those people, that is a really fun part of my week. That's so nice. Through your dad, you've experienced a lot. For yourself, you've experienced a lot. You've been in all these different churches. How do you see local church ministry changing and evolving now in the last, say, 10 years? Because a lot of people say that it is, and you know, in some in some ways, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? So mm-hmm. what do you see changing? And particularly, you know, we talk to pastors of smaller churches, and they may be in a context where there's a lot of change, and some of them are in rural contexts where there's not much change. But across the board, what are you seeing these days? I think what I'm seeing is it's change on two different uh, fronts, or maybe it's changed from two different sources of motivation. I'm not sure which. But one of those branches is change because there feels like a a disconnect between the way that things have been done in the past and the current longing for or desire for the church to actually matter and be a connecting voice and presence to people's lives and communities and families, et cetera. So it's like, can we actually make the church more realistic and meaningful as an alternative of God in the world and to the world? Or do some of the patterns that we've been the church or been doing church need to shift in order for that to be more accessible? So that feels like it's one sort of set of questions that is leading change or motivating change. The other, I think, is people really desperate, both in and outside the church, for experience of God, which is very different than experience of church. And I would not, Mm. I don't think they are supposed to be very different. But I think that there are those who are tired of church because it is not a place where they expect to experience God. And when I think back, it's interesting to sort of tell my little journey of being church in lots of different ways with different parts of the big family. Because I think that very much so in my growing up, we really did expect God to show up. Like that was part of 
worship was that you worshiped and then you heard the word and you sang the word and then you sat and waited for God to speak the word again, prophetically or through words of knowledge or Hmm. that God wanted to heal and that we would sit and wait and speak out those words of possible healing for people in that context and pray over them. But I knew as a little kid that you came to service to both give unto God and then to receive from God. And you didn't expect to do that receiving simply from music leader or the pastor or whatever else, but that this was the time for God to speak and do what he was going to do. And that that could happen through anybody. So I don't think I had any sense ever of a loftier view of clergy and maybe not a lofty enough view of the call of clergy for a long time. But I think that that expectation of God showing up was a really wonderful and really healthy expectation to then get to bring into that Presbyterian setting and then go, hey, what would this look like in this setting? And so Sunday mornings were rich and God's presence was powerful, just powerful. There were people who had come to church. And I remember meeting this one lady one Sunday, and she said, I've been trying to get to the front of the church for eight weeks. And my husband and I are just standing there saying, what? And she said, we've been trying. She goes, but it's like every week I can get one pew further, but I just can't get more than like two or three pews. And then I just couldn't move. I couldn't move. I just break down into tears. I couldn't move. She goes, the the weight of God's glory in this place is overwhelming me. And we were so accustomed to God showing up and healing people during service or during the Eucharist or during prayer or whatever else it was that it it just, we forgot like how weighty and wonderful that presence was until we would actually be away from that. So of course, you're, you're always trying to figure out what does it look like to help a congregation to grow in those ways and keep the craziness from getting too crazy out on the edges, but also not let people get too complacent in terms of expecting who seemed more comfortable in terms of being open to the spirit of God, um, using them in a corporate setting and saying, just because you're an introvert or just because you're not accustomed to doing that, you better come with the full two belt on because you don't know who will be here or not be here. And if the spirit of the Lord wants to do something beautiful in somebody's life, who are we to say he can't do that because the persons who are usually the ones who are not afraid to kind of move into that with us might not happen to be here that night. So we just, we learned a lot. You're saying that you think this is something that people are coming to church for. I think people are hungry to actually find out whether God is really present and whether the church can really function as a people who really do image in their life together the power and presence of God as it is seen in the life of Jesus. Now, I don't have a lot of churches that are signing up to say, we're ready to to sort of shift from what we've known how, what to do as church and just and just sort of go with a, a white paper and say, what, what might this look like if we started from scratch? And I don't think yeah. the Lord asks us to do that. I think it's more just saying, like, I think with my Presbyterian church, it was more kind of, here we are in our, our typical Sunday morning setting. And where do we make room to make sure that we haven't sort of liturgically scripted God into our service or out of our service? 
And then where did we also need to find ways where either in small groups in homes or in a Friday night gathering at the church or some other place that we would make room that was safe and smaller for people to learn how to sort of be a people who were present not just to each other and not just to their neighbors who did come and sort of be like, okay, what what happens here? But what was so fun there is that you just sort of come expecting that God would show up. And the non-Christians who had come into that setting were the least surprised by the things that God would do because they were the most expected to say, well, I'm coming to a group of people who believe in God and think that God does stuff. So, okay. It was the Christians who were the ones who were the most surprised sometimes by the fact okay, that God Okay. Would- so, Cherith, I have a question for you here. I know, I know there are so many pastors listening right now, and they're saying the kind of a service that you described where you just, you know, you heard from God, you gave to God praise and worship, and then you waited for God, and then God showed up. And then you're talking now about intimate settings in in homes with groups of people where God shows up. You talked about where God brought healing or spoke or did something almost even before you were expecting him to. There are pastors that are listening. They're saying, "Uh uh-uh. I've never had that experience. I I feel like I preach my heart out and the people in front of me just get up and they say good good message pastor and they leave and it's just like that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. What word do you have for that pastor, that man or woman who feels like they don't experience the spirit in their worship settings ever? Hmm. My first word is be encouraged. Because the one person we don't have to try to convince to do this is God. And so the encouragement is to, to press in. And I don't mean press in by preaching harder or trying to talk about it more. I would say press in mm-hmm. and begin to ask the Spirit of God how and where that kind of thing would start. And I, I re- recall, even in saying this to you, I recall <laughs> like the first time we went down to listen to uh, this class that John Wimber was teaching at Fuller called Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth. And he recounted his own experience of coming to Christ, like this crazy experience that he had. And then, the, I don't know if you know this story, but for the pastors who don't, he, he, was, he used to play an instrument as a background instrumentalist for the Righteous Brothers. And he was in Las Vegas and he's playing some set at some casino and he's, his life is falling to bits and he's desperate and, and suicidal. And he ends out, up, out in the middle of the desert and kind of crying out to God, gets back to his hotel room, opens up the Bible, starts reading. And the next morning basically just kind of crawls out and tries to find himself a church after having this amazing encounter with God. And he goes to this church and he sits in what he discovers later is a typical church service where he sits through the singing and he sits through a service and then everybody gets up and they start to go out the back door and he's following them and he grabs the the pastor, preacher, who he doesn't know who he is, but he just did the talking. And he says, are we going now to do this stuff? Where do we do this stuff? And the pastor looks at him and goes, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you just talked about this stuff. And I just read this like book of Luke last night. And Jesus does all this stuff. He says, when do we do this stuff? <laughs> the pastor says, we don't do this stuff. We talk about this stuff. 
Mm. And so John Wimber goes back and he reads Acts. He's like, well, they did this stuff. And then he's like reading the New Testament going, I want to do this stuff. So he finally ends up getting that beat out of him at school, at seminary. And later on as a pastor, he's preaching through what? Luke Acts. And they're preaching through Luke and they take a year. And they said, every week, we are going to ask Jesus by the Spirit in the will of the Father, the kingdom on earth as in heaven, to do among us what he did then. So we're going to ask for healing. We're going to ask for deliverance. We're going to ask for whatever he would do in our midst that people needed then, our people need now. And he said, we prayed like that for a year. We didn't get out of Luke for a year. And he said, nothing happened. People got sicker. People left the church because they just got bored. He said, it was just awful. And he finally just said that there was a young couple that came to his church. They were new Christians. They were hearing all of this. They were trusting that it was true. And the wife got really, really sick. So the young man asks John Wimber to come over and pray for her. And he says, I pulled the car over and I just had this out with God. I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to pray for them. I don't want to explain why you don't do anything. I'm just done. Like, this is the last time I'm sort of doing this. And he gets to the house and he prays for this woman. And then he goes out and in the living room, starts to explain to the husband why God doesn't do this stuff. And the husband just starts laughing. And John's like, what's the deal? And he says, well, thanks for that. But there's my wife. And she was up and completely healed. And she was very much like Peter's mother-in-law. She's like making him dinner. And he's like, (laughs) on his way home going, what just happened? But it it finally actually did become normal practice for their church to not just be able to bear witness to the kingdom of God in word, but to really like Jesus and like Paul says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And that to say this is God's inbreaking in the world means that actually people need to see that the future that God has in store of restoration is actually broken in through Jesus by the Spirit. So let's see what it is that God would do. And let's also not demand it of God because we see a cruciform Lord who didn't get to heal everyone and whose own life and the marks of his wounds tells us that this is the in-between space that also might require the same power of the Spirit that it takes to heal. The power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is also the same power that it takes to stand with those who are not getting healed and to endure and to be the character and the presence of God in the midst of oppression and suffering. And for us, it was neither either or. It was always both and. And Lord, which are you doing today? Because you are the Lord of life, we're going to assume that you want to bring life here. But what does life look like? So we're going to ask for the most life possible. And if you aren't doing that, you need to tell us that. Or we just promise to stay with those who you love, who you have life for in a different way than what we hope would happen right now. But that that expectation, that longing, I think it comes for the pastors who are like, I've never seen that. And I don't even know if I have a church that's hungry for that, is I would say start reaching out and finding people who have the courage and the faith to pray that for your congregation if you don't think you have those people in your midst yet. 
but I bet you do, to just begin to pray and begin to ask the Lord, who is it? Who is the underground person or persons who have been the Simeon and the Anna who God spoke to a long time ago and has given faith for something that they've just held on to and waited to see. But it took for first press San Mateo, where Robert and I showed up as 22 year olds in 1982, people had been praying for years before they saw a lot of what, when we showed up, felt pretty normal, and then things that became even more normal over our time there through lots of prayer and lots of patience and lots of screwing things up and hurting each other and needing tons <laughs> of forgiveness and tons of correction when we just go off the deep end with stuff. So we were never tidy and clean, and you should not look at us as the model of how to do it. It was just, we were willing. We were willing to kind of try and to mess up and to keep short accounts and to get forgiven quickly and to forgive quickly so that we could see as much as God could do in the San Francisco Bay Area, where there were 3% of the population that went to any kind of religious anything, including satanic worship in the city. So we just needed God to show up. Like we didn't have people interested in hearing about God. We needed God to be present so that if we talked about him, people would pay attention, (laughs) not just through our words, but because God would heal them. And so our Iranian neighbor would bring over her sick boy and say, I know you people pray. And I'd be like, yes, we do. Let's pray. And Shahab got better. You know, so it's like these things where you just go, it takes a community because that staying power is really, really hard. So to every pastor who's out there feeling like, I don't even know how I could begin I just want to say, be encouraged and do not let the enemy rob you through despair because it's not something you can do by yourself, but it's also not something you would ever be asked to do by yourself. So begin to ask the Lord, ask Jesus what he's been waiting to do and where he would quietly begin to create opportunities for that to happen. And now for those of you who know Dave Fitchwell, Dave and I just got to do this beautiful conference together down with some Anglicans in Texas. And to listen to Dave talking about his book, Faithful Presence, and just us talking together and sort of overlapping with one another, unbeknownst to us in our preparation, to talk about the ways that God is inviting us to be aware and attentive to ways that he would just open up space and open up presence. Um, It was such an amazing experience, not to just share that platform and have God's both speak through us, but to minister to a room and then watch God open up that space and heal relationships and have these leaders confessing and weeping before each other. And I thought, wow, like neither of us, came knowing what we were coming into or knowing what to expect. But you never stop expecting or just being ready that if you're just present, then as image bearers, so is the spirit present. And are we just attending to whatever that little open space is and then watch him open it a little bit more and a little bit more. But it takes a community to keep opening that space more and more. One person trying to push it open is just exhausting as well as impossible. So I went to seminary and I never heard a professor 
talk like this before. They were, how did you say it? The, the fro- scholars <laughs> on, who are frozen or whatever. The, the frozen think, chosen, I, as we would say. <laughs> yeah, well, God, God bless my professors, but I think some of them might have been a little bit like that. So I have one last question, and you have seven minutes to answer it. My last question is, as a pastor, and you're talking to a whole host of pastors in small, medium, and even a handful of large churches, men and women, and some of them, last time they went to school was uh, in 1974 when they graduated Bible college, and some of them are in school right now and and moving toward PhDs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's across the board. Mm -hmm. I believe that theology and education are vital to my ministry as a pastor. Can you make that case? Why? What role does that play in the life of a pastor, and why should we be concerned about theological education and theological acumen in our vocation? So here's an example. Last night in class, we had a classroom full of people, just like you described, all across that age range, who had done research, had read well, had thought well, and then got to sit together. And in the class, they had each written a paper on a different theory of atonement. So it was Mm. either penal substitution or Christus Victor, but I had clustered them in groups. So three or four of them had each written a paper with either theosis or satisfaction theory or something. So they were four groups. So they got the chance at the beginning of class to talk about the paper they'd read or written, which had to talk about historically, where the heck did this come from? Because Mm -hmm. you might be able to find some scripture verses to defend it, but you will never find this idea as it's set forth in an atonement theory in Israel's world or Jesus' world. Right. So how does it move from a salvation metaphor in the scriptures to the ways that we talk about atonement now? How does this way of becoming an on-ramp to understanding Jesus' death on the cross become helpful or a hindrance in terms of people's life with Jesus and in terms of what does it mean to be a Christian in terms of knowing God as triune, since so many of these ways of becoming Christian, which is really what atonement theories do, is they are not just explanations of what happens on the cross. They're how we tell people to become followers of Jesus, right? Like, lucky you, here's the four spiritual laws, and it's basically a simplistic version of penal substitution. So when you look at the ways that people come into the faith and then begin to say, what is the strength of this? How do we understand and bless its time historically? But also, where does it become too small of a way of seeing God, too small of a way of telling mm. the good news? If this is the only way that we present the gospel, when Paul himself could not keep from using three metaphors in one sentence, because he's using three <laughs> metaphors in contrast to three metaphors of what it looks like to be people caught by sin right? So if it's alienation, then it's reconciliation. If it's bondage, then it's redemption. If it's, I don't know, unrighteousness, then it's justification. Whatever it is that Paul's seeing, this is the effect on our life, then here's a corresponding metaphor that's beautiful, that brings us back into relationship and wholeness. So I'm thinking, you guys need to get good at this, because a 14-year-old boy does probably not need to hear penal substitution as the way of meeting Jesus, because he's already very aware of his brokenness and shame and guilt and a thousand other things. But does he really know himself as loved first? 
while he's yet in this mess of his life? And will he respond by someone who loves him into a a changing life as an image bearer only by the power of the spirit? Or will he feel guilted into this and then live his life shamefully trying hard to be nice for Jesus and never pull it off? So all this to say is that last night in the course of them talking with each other over the work that they did, and then they turned around as groups and taught us. So each group got to teach us their theory and what they learned and what they read from Michael Gorman and his beautiful New Covenant theory sort of way of looking at all these theories and saying, how do we get back into the Bible? But it also then said, does anybody know the triune God? Do we introduce people to God who's Father, Son, and Spirit? Or do these ways of becoming Christians and these funny theories that come into play in our language and our prayer life when we introduce people to Jesus, do they actually like leave the spirit as the optional third person of the Trinity to know? Because it's usually some weird transaction between the father and the son. Or like what happens? Like these, this doorway that you come in to the big household of God very often becomes so shaped that way that you think the whole beautiful, massive space of God's place is shaped like that. And then you're bent to that shape your whole Christian life. Are you actually good at recognizing lots of on-ramps, which would mean you'd have to listen to the Spirit for what God wants to say to that person, like my neighbor across the hallway who's not a Christian, who God just got me to stop praying for her on my phone and texting her and just walk across the hall and say, Christine, can I pray with you? She says, yes. I said, can I pray with you in person? She says, no. I said, okay, that's okay, because can I just tell you what I think God said to me while I was praying for you, she says, yes. And she starts to cry. And I said, this is what he told me (laughs) about what he sees in you and how he loves you. And she just stood in her doorway and wept and wept and wept and has been so softened to the things of God in the last couple of weeks. And I was like, Mm. she did not need to hear (laughs) the way that I wanted to tell her about the love of God. She just needed to hear that God loved her the way that God wanted to tell her. So all that to say is that theological education, when I'm in that classroom and these students are wrestling and, you know, beautifully stretching, they begin to come in and examine the fact that I don't teach them theology. They come in already loaded with theology. Mm. What we do in class is to spend time together in humility to say, okay, we've all just got, you're loaded up with all kinds of stuff. And it's, most of it's kind of crazy stuff, actually. And there's a beautiful center in here somewhere, but could we just sit in humility and listen to each other as well as to our deepest hearts and the ways that we got sort of introduced to God and the things of God and say, is this a good way? And not the best way or even the right way. There's just a few really right ways to be Christian, but there are a few. Like these are very few right proclamations. But I watch Jesus and I see him going about doing good, not going about doing right. He just was the right one and is the righteous <laughs> one. But he goes about and does lots of good things, lots of good ways by the yeah. Spirit. I think, okay, theological education should not be about getting it right versus wrong, which makes every other way that you see or think or do something either right and then everything else is wrong. Maybe it's just, what is the central narrative? What is our place in this beautiful story? How are we in line and in love with the Father through the living person of Jesus by their outpoured spirit joining us to them? 
to be part of something that they're doing that says, I need to really know God as triune. I need to know the spirit as this person. I need to see my life joined to the still human Jesus who teaches me how to be human. I need to understand that to be a Christian is personal, but it's not individual. And it's to be uniquely placed in a community as a personal, <laughs> individual child of the Most High, but but brought into a family. It means that I can't be a Christian by myself. So what does that do to shape me as a person in relation to others whose life is for the sake of the other? What does it, like all of that means that it takes theological unpacking to say, do I have a vision eschatologically of a future that knows how to be told and lived out in the present? Do I have a view of salvation that is not just a get out of free, a jail free card or get out of hell and into heaven ticket? But is this a view of salvation that's about shalom in the largest sense of the word? And the. Okay. Now, now, Cherith, Cherith, you are, you are torturing yourself, me, and our listeners by <laughs> by these little, you talked about Jesus do, going about doing good because he was the righteous one, and now you're talking about shalom, and these are all like juicy off-ramps into wonderful new territory okay. that we can't cover right Another now. Day. Go back and, and listen so to the first day. episode with Jared. <laughs> yeah, if you go oh. back and listen to the first, the fire hydrant episode, then you will learn all about go. these things. There you go. This was good. This was this was so good. And uh, when we come back, you know, I, I thought about the fact that we're righteous, right? We're righteous in Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we're righteous, can we just go about doing good and not worry about always being right? But that question is for the it next is. conversation. It because <laughs> it's uh, that would be a that would be an awesome That'd conversation really to have with you, Cherith. When we make it to Chicago, we will whether your husband can come or not, we will go out for pizza, okay. the three of us, <laughs> and we will talk about we will talk about Jesus and all things wonderful. I will just sit so, and listen. That's all I. No, that's no, all I no. want to do. Just yes, yes. We'll just do so, seminary right there in the pizza parlor. I do church. That, that's right. Well, see, we get to do. I love it. I love it. We get to do it on the podcast, and it's it's awesome. So our- now, wait, no. If we took Dave Fitch, he would say we should go to McDonald's exactly. because that's where the normal people <laughs> are. I wasn't going to say in their McDonald's. If we could go to a Tim Horton, Tim. That would be okay. Not Starbucks. No, no, no. Not Starbucks. Not Starbucks, that bougie coffee. Well, you guys will have to decide between each other before you come to Chicago whether this is deep dish or, like, pie, flat pie. You'll have to oh, tell me. That's the place. Giordano's? Is that the place? Yep. We'll have to find out. Your listeners wait to find out which pizza we're going to eat together in the name of Jesus. <laughs> That's right. Well, Cherith, thank you so much. We really appreciate yeah, thank it. You. Our listeners, thank you. It's a torture to have to cut us off at this point, but but it's time to go. So It's a privilege. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. We'll keep doing it. Johnny, if we actually had Cherith Nordling recording our trainedup.church training videos, we'd have to pay them like $300 a month <laughs> just just to fit all of her fodder onto a I can't even video. imagine Cherith Nordling teaching uh, your Sunday school teachers about classroom presentations 
And uh, that would be quite the thing. And the Sunday school teachers have to watch like two and a half hours a week of training videos. <laughs> so, again, hey, our new sponsor, our new sponsor beginning in February of uh, 2018 is trainedup.church. You can check them out. And uh, if you go with their service, put in as a code 200 churches, all caps, and you'll get 10% off for life. Johnny, that was an awesome episode. It really was. She's she, uh, she's like, you you have to just grab onto something. I mean, your words about the airplane were spot on. And it's funny. She was like, I'll try not to be a fire hydrant this time. I don't think she can help herself. <laughs> no. I don't think she can help herself. Oh, that was, and yeah. it's beautiful. I think no, it's phenomenal. No. I mean, I'm just, I'm just tickled pink that she would come on and hang out with two schmucks like us and uh, share her heart like that. So thank you to Cherith, and I appreciate her time. And I, I hope that my mockery of David Fitch there at the end uh, didn't offend her too much. Well, when she said that she was at a conference with him speaking, I it's funny how I couldn't get a word in edgewise, but what I was going to say was... I can't believe you sullied yourself by being at a conference with David Fitch. I submit. So, you know, I submit worry. that this conference, we go That's to McDonald's. Right. Well, I was hoping uh, the only reason we would have needed David Fitch on this past episode, this episode here was would be to open up some space <laughs> for us to talk. <laughs> but then again, Hey, we didn't we need to open up space. That, you know, for me, for me, it reminded me of when I was uh, in seminary or even in Bible college years and years ago, and just sitting and listening to uh, a lecture where it just makes your mind just go go crazy. Your imagination runs wild, and you start thinking about God and spiritual things and biblical things in ways that you just yeah. never would yep. on your own. That's kind of what I experienced when I sit and listen to her uh, on it's, these episodes. It's really incredible. And uh, I hope that you, our listener, were as as blessed as we were in this conversation. At the end, Jeff, you talked about how we could have just gone down about 18 different rabbit holes with her. I could, I could, We could have sat oh, there yes. all day, and it would have been fine with me. Uh, we'll have her back. We'll talk some more. Uh, but until then, we uh, hope that you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next week on the 200 Churches Podcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired by this episode of the 200 Churches Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe at 200churches.com and to access every one of our hundreds of past episodes, go to 200churches.com slash podcast. You can count on us to be back next Wednesday with yet another brand new awesome episode recorded specifically for small church pastors just like you. So until next week, may God bless you as you lead and love the people in your 200 church. That sounds worse to me. I don't know. I know. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe we want to like delete this and start all over again. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, we know how to edit. We know how to edit very well. Very well. Well, we should probably get rolling here since we're a little bit. Let's do it. uh, A little bit late. We don't want to keep you too long. Um, Johnny, you want to start it? I can do that. Sorry. I'm currently I'm doing something, and I shouldn't be doing anything but being in this moment right here. So I apologize. I'm done doing that other thing now. I got to get this thing. Could, could that be like our topic of first conversation is, can you and be a seminary professor? And- <laughs> sure. 
sure can. Why do I feel like probably most <laughs> seminary professors are are? That's what. I'm <laughs> well, because they're liberal, enlightened, elitist. Oh, that's there why. you go. That's I see. That's why I ungodly. See. Besides, ungodly. Wow, you're going hard on this. <laughs> Terrible. Well, you know, I gotta I, go. 